Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and verses 37 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone first, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you this morning. We are back again in the Gospel of John on this lovely day before America's birthday tomorrow. Uh, maybe you were watching some fireworks last night. I'm sure you are also all well aware that it is, of course, my birthday tomorrow. Um, so all of those fireworks were for me. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I expect a happy birthday on my Facebook page from all of you tomorrow. Thank you. As we continue to walk through the Gospel of John, we find ourselves stumbling upon something that Jesus says that might be vaguely familiar to us. Like if you've been familiar with the Bible throughout your life or you've been around church for any length of time, you might have heard Jesus say this. Here it is. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's an interesting thing for Jesus to say, is it not? What could it mean? What could it mean that those who come to him and believe in him out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water? Well, you know, when, when many of us read these words from Jesus, we just assume we know what Jesus means here, I think. Instead of making sure we really understand what Jesus is saying, we just kind of fill in those gaps. We're going to get to that eventually. But first, I want to try to explain what Jesus is getting at through a little game that I used to play growing up. So just bear with me on this. There was always different versions of this game, but the gist was pretty much the same. Here it is. It started with this question. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? You could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? And there are four options I'm going to give you to answer this question. In the mountains, on the beach, in the forest, or in the desert? So you got four options, you choose one, and even if it's just for my own entertainment, 
uh, we're all going to raise our hands, and I'm going to call out all these things, and you raise your hand which one you chose, okay? So who would live in the mountains? If you had the, yep, wow, a lot of you, okay, great. How about the beach? Yep, there we go. The forest? Yeah, a couple. In the desert, would anyone live in the desert? No, no one. Oh, one, we got one. See, there's always a few weirdos who pick the desert. <laughs> always. And I get it. I get it. There's beauty in the desert, right? There's beauty. I've been out to Phoenix. I've hiked in Sedona. I've been to the Grand Canyon, all that stuff. And when I think of living in the desert, that's often what I think of those places. But really, that's not the real desert. You know what I mean? There, there is a reason that in every action and adventure movie, when the main character gets lost in the desert, we think they're going to die. We think they're going to end up dying. There's no water, there's no food, there's a mirage up ahead that makes them think that there's water, right? And so they get to that point and realize there's no water there. Makes them even more disoriented. Life in the desert is hard. The desert is a dead place. If you stay there long enough, your skin starts to feel like sandpaper, your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth, your eyes are constantly trying to keep the loose sand from blowing in your face. And after a while, those of you who chose the desert are gonna think about the beach house that you didn't choose. The desert is ultimately harsh, unforgiving, and desolate. Here's the turn. What if I change the question? If I ask you something else. This might be strange, but go with me. If your life, your being, your person, was one of those places in the game that we just played, which would it be? Would you be a mountain, a beach, a forest, or a desert? You might not know exactly which one you want, but I guarantee you there's one you definitely don't want. You don't want to be a desert. No one wants to be a harsh, dry, unforgiving, desolate place where nothing seems to grow. None of us want to be that. I hope you don't want to be that. <laughs> and you've seen our passage today. Jesus says something interesting. He says, some of you feel like you're a desert. You're searching for water for your soul, and you've ultimately found none. Something deep inside of you is thirsty for something. You're thirsty for something more, but you struggle to find it. So you've learned to deal with it. Or you learn to live in a constant state of lack. You look in your innerness and you see it craving satisfaction, but nothing has really been there that satisfies long enough. Jesus says to that person, if it's you, if you're the thirsty one, he says, come to me. And when you come, drink me up. When you do, instead of finding a desert island or desert inside, instead you'll find in your innerness lit rivers of living water. That is a bold promise, is it not? Ultimately, what Jesus is asking each person in that crowd 2,000 years ago is the same thing he asks of you this morning. Do you want rivers of living water? Do you want the thing that he can give you that nothing else can give you? In other words, do you want the overflowing life? Do you want the overflowing life? If you do, then there's a way to get it. During our time today, we're going to look at three different responses to Jesus that keep us living in the desert. The responses are bottlenecks to the rivers of living water, to the overflowing life that Jesus promises. And once we've covered those responses, those bottlenecks, which are very much demonstrated in our own passage this morning, we're going to talk about the response to Jesus that leads us to the place where we can experience the overflowing life that he promises. 
So let's take a look at the first response. Look with me at the beginning of our passage. Again, we are in John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'll read it for us. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he sees to be known openly, seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. We often don't think of Jesus having half-brothers and sisters, do we? Like, that's not often kind of how we imagine him. But he did, in fact. And some of Jesus' brothers and sisters are named in the Gospel of Mark. We know, too, that one of his half-brothers, James, became a leader in the early church. But anyway, we see here that early on in Jesus' ministry, none of them believed Jesus was who he was claiming to be. In fact, not only did they not believe him, right here, they're testing him. Jesus' siblings are heading to the Feast of Booths, which is this festival celebrating God leading the Jewish people out of the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. The Jewish people would build little tents around Jerusalem. They would light lights, sort of like Christmas lights. It was really fun. People wouldn't want to miss out on this, so they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And despite this really fun time ahead at the festival, Jesus wasn't going to go. He refused to go. And that didn't sit well with his siblings. It actually made them suspicious of him. And they are like, hold on, if you're not actually who you claim to be, or wh why would you do all these things in secret and then not go out in public and do them? It doesn't add up. If you're doing miracles and you want to be a great teacher, then this is precisely the perfect place for you to do that. You can impress people, you can gain disciples, but not going, maybe you're not that confident in yourself. Basically, his siblings are testing him. They're like, Stop wasting your time in Galilee. A real Messiah would go to Jerusalem. He would strike when the iron's hot. And this is the first response to Jesus. This is the first bottleneck. Here it is. A desert life demands Jesus be more impressive. Jesus' brothers are unimpressed. His strategy, his game plan, his track record right now of losing more disciples than he's gaining all of this from his brother's perspective is not enough. It's not impressive enough. And here's how Jesus responds to his brothers. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about its works, about that its works are evil. If you go up to the feast, you go up to the feast, I'm not going to go up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus is basically like, hey guys, my, you might not like my timing or my strategy, but I don't care. <laughs> it feels like Jesus is basically like, hey, if I go, I'm going on my own terms. It's clear that Jesus knows his father's timing is more important than his brother's opinions. And this is often where I think we get frustrated. Often we get stuck wanting Jesus to prove something to us. There are times in our lives where we've wanted God to do something, to say something, to change something. And at the end of the day, we end up waiting in silence. We're underwhelmed and unimpressed. And it's almost like we can cross our arms and test God, prove Jesus. Hey, if you really want me, if you want me, Jesus, prove to me by giving me X. Prove to me by doing that. Prove to me by changing that. But what do we do when God doesn't prove whatever we wanted him to prove? 
when he doesn't do what we wanted him to do? When his timing is different than our timing? Do we get frustrated? Do we bail? If you've journeyed with God for a little bit of time, then there's no doubt you've been frustrated with him at times. You've been unimpressed or disappointed. There are times when he doesn't seem to do what you want. You know, this happens all over the Gospels, too. I'll share with you an example. Jesus had a friend, Lazarus. Lazarus got sick. His family members sent a messenger to Jesus. Jesus was at a different town, a ways away. Lazarus is really ill. He's on the brink of death. Come. Jesus tells, the, tells them, hey, Lazarus is not going to die. But then Lazarus actually dies. <laughs> a few days go by, and Jesus finally makes it. And Lazarus' sisters are there like, what the heck, man? You said he wouldn't die, and then he did. And if you would have just come earlier, he would still be here with us. Jesus went to see him. He wept, and then he raised him to life. God's timing, not Lazarus' timing, not his family's timing. Yes, that miracle was impressive, but it came after some serious disappointment, the death of a man. Here's another example. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell a story of a man named Jairus who comes to Jesus. He's incredibly desperate because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. Jesus ends up going on his way to see her, but he gets pulled in a different direction. He actually ends up teaching for a bit. While he's teaching, the little girl dies. Can you imagine Jairus' dad, the dad's reaction? He was so close to getting his daughter healed, but the miracle worker decided to stay and teach instead of healing his daughter. Well, Jesus finally gets to the house. People are distraught. This young girl has died. Jesus raises her from the dead. And yes, again, that miracle was impressive. But do you think that was Jairus' preferred timing? No, of course not. He didn't want to see his daughter die. God's timing is often different from our timing. What are we going to do with the God who isn't out to impress us? A desert life says to God, prove it. Prove it to me. A desert life demands that God impress us on our own timetable. Jesus' brothers were stuck in the desert, and oftentimes so are we. We are stuck in the desert waiting for God to prove something to us. Are you testing God right now in your life? Are there ways a posture of belief would open up space, a posture of trust would open up space for God to reveal himself to you in a more powerful way? A more powerful way than you have designed for your own self. An overflowing life, in an overflowing life, our faith has to be bigger than our desire for our own timeline, our own game plan, our own expectations. It has to be bigger than our testing God, for an overflowing life, at the end of the day, faith and belief has to win out. Again, a desert life demands Jesus be more impressive. But that's not the only bottleneck to, living, to the living water that Jesus promises. Let's keep going. There's more. Look with me again at our passage. This time we're going to start in verse 11. It'll be up on the screen behind me. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. 
About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this man, how, how is it that this man has learning when he has never even studied? When John says that the Jews are marveling at Jesus, in this instance, he's actually referring to the religious authorities, the religious leaders, the teachers of the day. So it, it, he's saying that it's the religious leaders and teachers who are in awe of Jesus, these religious teachers are confused and amazed because Jesus' teaching is so compelling, even though he's never had any formal training. And in Jesus' day, and this is still true today, of course, but in Jesus' day, to be a religious leader and teacher, you really had to have the right credentials. These guys would spend years and years and years training from childhood on under a rabbi in school every day. They never stopped reading and learning and training around the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. So these dudes have prepared their whole lives to teach, just like someone who goes and gets a PhD, right? Then comes to Jesus. They, they, this walk, Jesus walks in. And let me remind you, Jesus is not of noble birth. He's pretty much nobody from the backwoods of Galilee. He's got a weird accent. He has no pedigree, no formal training. And now he's in Jerusalem, the big city. He's on their turf, and guess what? He's impressive. He's besting them, and he's winning a few people over. And overall, they just can't understand or process how he talks so well when he didn't go to rabbi university with them. Amen. And this is what I think is important. John says that they marvel at Jesus, but marveling doesn't really mean that they were listening. I'm not sure they were actually listening to him. I'm pretty sure all that they could think about is this. He's not qualified like us. He lacks the right certification. His methodology is different. So honestly, who gives this guy the right to tell anyone about anything about God, about spirituality, life, or faith? They can't trust him or the life he has to offer because they don't like his resume. And this leads me to our second response to Jesus. A desert life wants Jesus to have better credentials. Now go with me here on this one. I think we do the same thing with Jesus today in some ways. This is because Jesus doesn't sound like us. He's not modern like us. Jesus isn't a scientist with proofs and lab results. Jesus doesn't have a podcast where he spouts off his opinions about recent alien phenomena and ancient civilizations and evolution. Jesus isn't a psychologist who wrote a best-selling book giving us 12 rules telling us how to improve our own self-image and understand how to become a person who is self-empowered. Jesus isn't a present-day philosopher who's on a lecture tour on YouTube telling us humanity has moved beyond religious myth and we can find reason for ethics outside of historic Christian worldview. Jesus isn't modern. He doesn't sound like us. He never published a book he never wrote anything that we know of. He never had a podcast or won the Nobel Peace Prize or done anything our modern day heroes do. In fact, Jesus' life is full of enigmas. It's claimed that he was born of a virgin, conceived by God himself. It's recorded that he did numerous miracles, some of which we've talked about in this series. His teachings are many times confusing and not simple. He speaks in paradoxes. You must lose your life to save it. You must die to live. You must chain yourself to me in order to be free. Jesus is puzzling. 
And at times, he's difficult to understand. He's not got our modern sensibilities. He doesn't have the degrees and qualifications to impress us. And because of all of that, sometimes we marvel at Jesus, but we keep him at arm's length. We don't listen to him. Why do you think that is? Well, maybe it's because we like to think about him. We like to wrestle with him, the thoughts and the implications of his teachings, but then we never really get personally invested. We marvel at him, but we don't actually take in what he has to say. And this is what he has to say. This is what he says at the Feast of Booths. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He doesn't say, think I'm a good teacher. Think about what I say and you'll find a good life. He says, come to me and drink of me. Believe in me. And if you do this, living water, which really is an indirect way of saying the spirit of God, this living water, the spirit of God himself will flow from me into you and through you out your belly. A desert life keeps Jesus at arm's length because we want him to have the credentials we want him to have. We want him to be modern like we are modern. The overflowing life does the opposite. The overflowing life trusts him on his terms for who he is, believes in him, and trusts that when they fall into him, they are falling into rivers of living water. So the first bottleneck is the overflowing life Jesus promises is that the first bottleneck to the overflowing life Jesus promises that we want him to impress us. The second bottleneck of the overflowing life is that we want Jesus to have our credentials. But there's one more. Look with me one more time at our passage here. Verses 25 and 26. Listen to these verses. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, it is not this man, is, is it not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So some people are actually considering he really is the Messiah. And whoever these people are, they're actually impressed with Jesus. These people, apart from the religious leaders, they, they aren't concerned with his credentials. No, Jesus has done enough to get his attention. They're actually listening to him, but there's still one problem. Look how it continues in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Let me try to explain this a little bit. There was a rumor floating around at that time, and John's recording for us, for us here, that when the Messiah came to rescue the Jewish people, no one would know where he came from. In some ways, that kind of sounds juvenile to me, at least. Like, no one will know where he comes from. But people had this preconceived notion about the Messiah, who he should be, what he should look like, what he will do, where he will come from. And it was these preconceived notions that stopped people from seeing Jesus for who he actually was. Instead of taking Jesus for who he was, they, can, they were consumed about who Jesus should be, and that's what kept them from squaring their preconceptions with who he actually was. So these folks, they're there for the festival, and they're like, man, this Jesus is pretty awesome, but at the end of the day, we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth, so there's no way he's the Messiah. The Messiah would definitely not come from there. 
That's an automatic no. Let me bring this home. And yes, for those who are tracking with me, that was a, that was a pun on purpose. Yeah. Of course, I don't think our expectations of who Jesus is should have anything to do with his hometown. And yet, this same dynamic can still be alive and well in our own lives. We have expectations of Jesus, don't we? When we are living a desert life, what happens is Jesus has to meet all of our expectations. Let me say that in a different way. A desert life wants Jesus to meet our every expectation. We are all willing to sit here and listen to him, maybe even consider him a little bit, but if he doesn't check every box on our list, we're out. It's an all or nothing proposition. Here's how I really think this plays out. Often unknowingly, we make Jesus into the God we want him to be. So we're interested in a Jesus who is exactly like us. Jesus takes our side. Jesus would vote the way that we vote. Jesus would spend money the, way the, sa- the same way we spend money. Our friends would be Jesus' friends. Our enemies are Jesus' enemies. We make Jesus into the person who meets our wants and expectations. And if the real Jesus actually attempts to challenge us or to confront us or to actually change us, God forbid, it's time to reinvent him again. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but when was the last time Jesus changed your thinking, your opinion? because you felt confronted or pointed in a new direction by him. A sign that you maybe don't understand the real Jesus or or you're not taking Jesus seriously is if Jesus never really challenges you. If you always end up with the Jesus you've always wanted, who only makes life easier. In his book, The Divine Commodity, Sky Jatani says this about how we make Jesus into what we want him to be for ourselves. He says, I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and look not into the darkness of my own heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as well as in heaven. Let me show you how this plays out just in maybe a different way. I remember early on in my journey of faith, I was part of this church community in college, and as a part of our Sunday evening gatherings, there would be this testimony time, which is often really fun, and people would come up and share something that God did in their lives that week, and it could be really encouraging, Um, and I found it really encouraging, and one, one of the young leaders of the community came up, and he shared this story about encountering God that week, and it was awesome, and he was like a funny, winsome guy, you know? Found like he, felt like he was kind of building his own following, you know. And he made this remark, which was goofy, and it was supposed to be funny to some degree. It's just stuck with me over the years. And he said something like, I can't wait to get to heaven to give Jesus a wet willy. That's what he said. And that's funny, you know, everyone laughed. But this is just a small example of how we can create Jesus in our own imagination rather than encountering him on his own terms. Of course, I think Jesus is incredibly approachable. At the same time, Jesus is talked about in some spheres as being our buddy at our service when we need him. Jesus is the same God who created 170 billion galaxies. He isn't your buddy. 
He's your God, and He loves you. But to think that we can neuter Him in His power and His authority and what He ultimately deserves, which is our unconditional surrender to Him, is a different story. Do we want a controllable God? Or do we want Jesus who can't be controlled by our limited vision and our curated expectations of him? Do you want Jesus because of what he can do for you? Or do you want Jesus because he is God? All right. Well, we've looked at three bottlenecks to the overflowing life, to the living waters that Jesus promises. The bottlenecks are wanting Jesus to meet our every expectation, to have our credentials, wanting Jesus to be more impressive. Those are the bottlenecks. How do we get to the rivers? Let's talk about the rivers. I said we would get to this topic eventually. Let me remind you what John records Jesus saying. I want to read it for us just one more time. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this is really what I've wanted to talk about all along, but we had to get there. And here's why. This is a question I have been wrestling with. And I want to wrestle along with you here this morning. I've been wrestling with this for the past few years, I'd say. And here's the question. And maybe this is just me, but here's the question. God, you promised rivers of living water. Why don't I feel them? That's my question. Jesus where are the rivers of living water that you have promised? And I think there are a good number of Christians, from what I can tell, who live with this kind of burden. Deep down, they're asking, where's the water? Jesus, you say, if I just come to you, and I'll, ne- I'll never thirst again. But I feel thirsty, so where does that leave me? Perhaps you've wrestled with that question. Maybe you haven't. Even so, perhaps you're one of those who, who are like me. And when I think what Jesus says here, when he's promising rivers of living water... We often just assume what he, we, we, we know what he's talking about. We fill in the gaps. We might think, oh, Jesus means my life will overflow with love. Or Jesus means my, my life will overflow with peace. Or, or I really, if I just live life in his will, I'll always feel deeply, deeply satisfied. And I don't think any of those maybe are entirely wrong. But as I was talking with this passage with someone in my life this week, they asked me a simple question, just kind of coming back at me as I was like just externally processing this. And they were like, well, what, Ben, do you think the rivers are supposed to feel like? What do you think they're supposed to feel like? And that kind of caught me off guard. But that's when it kind of became clear to me, and I don't claim to have all the answers here, but I think what I'm about to say is biblical, true, (laughs) You know what makes the rivers of living water that Jesus promises feel different from what we might expect? Because I think the rivers of living water sometimes feel like death. Let me get there. That sounds dramatic and melancholy. Just go with me. It's not. What Jesus is ultimately saying here is that those who believe in him, they will receive the spirit of God. And that spirit will pour out of them. We talked about that just briefly earlier. But do you know how we get the Spirit of God? How do you get the Spirit of God? It's not by coming to Jesus and and believing. Yes, that's true. It's coming to Jesus and dying. A few chapters later in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is primarily talking about himself here. He's saying that for resurrection life, for the spirit of God to be unleashed, he must die. So he's predicting his own death and resurrection. But what Jesus is also doing is he's setting up the model for what it looks like to follow him. The pathway to following Jesus looks the same. We must split open and die for new life to come from us. When we come to Jesus, we die to ourselves And then we live into the new life that we have in Christ, the life that is given to us by his spirit. So basically, I think the rivers of living water, they come through death. And you might be thinking, that is an encouraging word here, Ben, at the end of the sermon. We finally got there, and that's the encouraging word. Thank you. I'm going to go celebrate Independence Day and eat some hamburgers. It is a strange... baby in my hand. (laughs) In a strange turn of events... I think what we have to remember is that this is actually encouraging because there is nothing we can do to conjure these rivers of living water up within ourselves. If we do, we're going to be left with a desert. We can't do that. It's impossible. We need God to do that. And God's spirit will do that generously. We can have God's spirit pouring out of us. How do we get God's spirit? We die to ourselves. First, we die to ourselves by saying, Jesus, I trust you. It's that first commitment. Jesus, I trust you and not myself. I trust you to guide me through this life. I trust you, not myself. I trust you in all of my decision making. I trust you and not myself to bring me to a place where I am deeply satisfied. That's the first step of trust. And the second step is returning to that place of trust over and over and over again. That's the Christian walk with Jesus. Learning to trust him every day. Frederick Buechner, the brilliant writer, says it this way. Every morning you should wake up in your bed and ask yourself, can I believe it all again today? If we can say that, if we can say I fully trust again today, then what we're doing is replacing ourselves in the posture of death. And it's in that place of death that we're aligning ourselves with Jesus and with God's spirit. It's in this place of death that new life with Christ is formed. And it's that new life where we bear the fruit of the spirit. And Jesus says that seed that dies will bear much fruit. What's the fruit that we bear? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So if you are struggling with wondering where the rivers of living water are, and you feel like you're a bit of a desert, I have one encouragement for you. The overflowing life trusts Jesus. Those who experience the overflowing life, they have found a deep place of trust in Jesus. There's a well of trust. So if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, come to me or another person on staff. We'd love to chat with you. Trusting in him is where it all starts. But if you have trusted Jesus, those rivers you are searching for, they will come from returning to that posture of death, which is ultimately a posture of trust. Can you choose once again, always again, to trust? And that in your death, you'll find life. Can you choose to trust that ultimately that death is freedom? Can you choose to trust that in your death, you'll find life? Will you pray with me, please? 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that your words are not just black words on white pages. It's the words of life. We trust you. We choose to trust you. Holy Spirit, elevate our ceiling. Increase our capacity to trust you. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with yourself and make your fruit ripe in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for those who are wondering where the rivers of living water are this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon them in abundance. And that they would sense those rivers pouring into them and coming out of them. That it would feel that. That would grow their relationship with you, Lord Jesus. Would you meet them there in that place? We love you, Lord. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. And Father, it's in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit we pray these things. Amen.